Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday night and it is time for Friends in Fiction. So let's get rolling because we have three amazing guests to get to tonight and lots more to celebrate. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. Damn it! It's it's never a good sign when we're 30 seconds in and we've already screwed it up, you guys. This is a do-over. All right, Mary Kay Andrews and Patty Callahan Henry, in case you didn't hear, and this is Friends in Fiction, a hot mess express of four New York Times bestselling authors. Endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, do we have a great show in store for you. So Fiona Davis will be here talking about her latest, which is an ode to Radio City Music Hall and the Rockettes. Then we'll welcome Heather Webb, whose latest is about the love story of Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner. Finally, Brenda Janowitz will be with us on the after show, and she'll be talking about Audrey Hepburn, the inspiration behind her latest novel. So get ready, folks, because we are headed into a night of glitz and glamour, all connected to the mid-20th century. And since the beginning of Friends and Fiction, over three years ago, we have been here in these little squares, bringing you incredible authors, hot reads, and fascinating author interviews, all while supporting independent booksellers. And one way that you can help us support indies is to buy from them when and where you can, or visit our own Friends and Fiction bookshop.org page. There you will find Fiona's books, Heather's books, Brenda's books, books by the four of us, and all of our guests at a discount. And speaking of amazing books, don't forget to join the Friends and Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa on their Facebook, which is separate from this Facebook. I join them on June 19th at 7 p.m., where we will be discussing my latest novel, The Secret Book of Flora Lee. We will be talking about all the stories behind the stories, maybe even some spoilers. So get reading, people. Get reading. <laughs> and that and that is just this coming Monday. So you guys only have a few more days to finish The Secret Book of Flora Lee and show up. Yeah. So, all right. Now, without further ado, let's welcome Fiona Davis. Fiona is the New York Times bestselling author of multiple historical fiction novels set in iconic New York City buildings, including the Magnolia Palace, the Dollhouse, the Address, and the Lions of Fifth Avenue, which was a Good Morning America book club pick. Her novels have been chosen as one book, one community reads, and her articles have appeared in publications like the Wall Street Journal and O Magazine. Fiona first came to New York as an actress but she fell in love with writing after getting a master's degree at Columbia Journalism School. Her books have been translated into over 20 languages and she's based in New York City. Her new novel, The Spectacular, was just released yesterday. It is so good and centers around the glamorous Radio City Music Hall and the Rockettes. 
Sean, can you bring Fiona on? Hey. Hey, Hi, Fiona. Fiona. Welcome. It's good to see everyone. This is, this is fantastic. Oh, we are absolutely thrilled to have you. We're so glad you could be with us. So Fiona, we love to do a quick warm-up chat with guests before we dive into questions, whenever we have the time. And tonight, since we have you with us, and you're so well-known for picking New York landmarks and spinning incredible historical stories about them, I would love to ask all of you whether there's a building in your world that you think would have a fascinating story to tell. So Fiona, I'm going to save you for last since my question for you will be a little bit different. But Christy, how about you? Hmm. This is not a building, but it's, I, I, my house has a really an interesting story and I'd love to know more about it. Um, so I live in Beaufort, which is a pre-revolutionary town. So the house that we're sitting in right now, well, the room that I'm sitting in right now was built about 18 months ago, but the house was built in 1903. The original house was built um, in like 1724, believe it or not. And every other house on the street, except for ours, was built in the really early 1700s. And um, our foundation is still from the 1700s, which is kind of oh. cool. So I always think about like all the people who have lived here before, and I really don't know as much about it as I would like to. But um, funnily enough, related to the book that I'm working on right now, the neighbor next door um, brought me some really cool things about my house um, a couple of weeks ago and like recipes from the kitchens of the women who lived here before me and like these really neat things. No so, um, I'm kind of delving into it a little more and trying to find out a little more about the people. You're cooking all those recipes, right? Oh yeah. Oh, of course. For yeah. Sure. And when we come visit in like, August, uh, you're cooking now we know all of that. Yeah. Like mullet stew. So I'll make that That's for delicious. you guys. Great. Yeah. You guys, I'll bring Great. something on the side. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Patty, how about you? Is there an old building that's kind of captured your imagination? Yeah, and I'm not even sure it counts as a building. It's a castle. But when I was working on Once Upon a Wardrobe, you know, Dunluce Castle, which is in Belfast, Ireland, and still stands. I mean, it's the remains of it. But the stories out of that one castle, which make me think of every other, you know, our Mary Kay just got back from London. So she can tell you, like, you walk into those buildings and you feel like if you just put your ear to the wall, like you could hear the whisper of all these stories. So when you asked that, that was the first thing that popped into my mind is that ca ruined castle sitting on a cliff overlooking the Irish Sea. Ooh, I, love I love it. That. I can already feel the book that would come from that. How about, how about I you? Know. I know. How about you, MKA? You know, it's kind of macabre, but I've always been fascinated with the Central State Hospital in Milledgeville, Georgia. Mm. Um we pass through Macon every time we go down to, to uh, tie the island. And um, Central State was for decades Georgia's home for the criminally insane. And so uh, a large part of it is still standing. I've seen photos of it, and um, I can't even imagine the stories that building could tell. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, for me, it would be um, the apartment building I lived in in Paris uh, when I lived there about 20 years ago. Uh, it, it was right near the Eiffel Tower. It had been there for hundreds of years. And same, I, I can just imagine the stories it's told over the years through all the conflict yeah. that's happened in Paris, all, all the wars that have happened there. So, Fiona, how about you? Is there a building either in New York or elsewhere that you feel like is just waiting to have its story told? And this actually might be a question of, is there another book you have in the works that you want to mention or it might just be like a future you know thought of this this might be a great place to talk about well I mean first of all I'm just making notes of all your ideas because <laughs> <laughs> they're really good and and Christy I'll be at your house you know 
for, I for wish this you too. Would. Please come. Have we have an invitation. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, for me, it's funny that you know, as as the you you publish one book and you that takes a long time to kind of get going. So in the meantime, you start the other book. So. Yeah. This year, I've been working on a book that's set at a really wonderful building here in New York, the Met Museum. Oh, nice. And there's so much there to mine. And in fact, I just got back from a trip to Egypt where I was doing research for the book, right? Um, because I thought if I'm going to write about the Egyptian wing, I need to know what it's like in Egypt. So had this great trip. And it's set partly in the Egyptian wing and partly from the point of view of an assistant at the Met Gala. So it's oh, cool. I think glamour and mummies, and we'll see where it goes. <laughs> I love oh, that. Fiona, oh I cannot wait. Fiona, you always come up with the best stuff. So speaking of the best stuff, I would love to dive into talking about this great book. So, of course, we know from the gorgeous cover, it is set largely in Radio City Music Hall. And, of course, you're known for writing, as we were discussing, about real places in New York. So in this spectacular, you also deal with the Rockettes and a bomber who's attacking well-known locations in the city. So that's kind of the quick overview of the book, but can you tell us what the book is really about at its heart? Yeah. So, so the, the main character, Marion is a, she wants to be a rocket desperately against her father's wishes. And so she auditions and she gets the job and it's really about, you know, when you're a rocket, you have to be so precise. You have to be exactly like everyone else. And so it's about what is the cost of really sublimating your own creativity or individuality for the good of the greater whole. And that's whether in a precision dance kick line or working for a corporation, you know, when do you toe the line to get the job done? And when do you need to really speak out and make your voice heard? Oh, I love that. Oh gosh. It makes me sit here and want to put that in my morning pages and answer it. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. that's such a good question. Even if it's about family, kids, yeah husbands, boyfriends. Yeah, absolutely. Where do we toe the line and where do we, that, that line is so hard to walk. Um, but we love talking about origin stories for novels. And I think you have a particularly fascinating one for this book. You received a letter from a woman named Sandy, just as you were thinking about what do I want to write next? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So it was actually an email um, that she wrote to me through my author website. And she wrote to me and said, look, I'm in my 80s. I'm a former Rockette. And if you want to know about the secrets of Radio City Music Hall, you should call me. I just got chills all over my mind. I I I don't get emails like that. (laughs) (laughs) I was on the phone pretty quickly because I was at that point kind of grasping around and I nothing was sticking. I couldn't find something that really hooked me. So I called her and we had this great conversation and she has such vivid memories Mm -hmm. from that time. She danced there from um, 59 to 62 and, and she just had some really great memories. And she also had a stack of archival materials, which as you know, uh, Kristen, that is what, you know, and, and Christy and, and Patty, that is what you need. You know, you need these things that, that the Rockettes schedule, here's a program, here's, this is what the daily life was like. And so I was able to build it out from there. And from then on, I, I went on and interviewed a number of Rockettes, some who danced there in the forties and some more recently, and just got the greatest stories. The book really wrote itself. Oh, wow. That's, That's incredible. Is that the first time that's happened to you that you received a letter or someone mentioned something to you and then you felt because it happened to me with surviving Savannah, a a 
a local mariner told me of the wreck and I got that thing, you know, that chill bump yes. down the back of your neck, down your arms. Has that happened to you before where someone else told you about a building or an idea? It, yeah, in two ways. One in that whenever I was, you know, wandering around doing book tours, people would often say to me, you should do something at the New York Public Library. So that definitely came from the readers. But another one was I was doing a book talk in Westchester and a woman named Karen came up to me after and she said, you know, if you want, I can get you a behind the scenes tour of, of Grand Central. And I thought, oh, well, I won't say no to that. So we were given hard hats. We got this amazing tour and, you know, we went all over. We went way below. We climbed down ladders. We went on the catwalk on the windows. And and so that came from a reader as well. I'm very open to ideas. I clearly have none of my own. Yeah, because the Egyptian thing, I'm sure somebody just yeah. handed that to you on a sure, silver platter, sure. Fiona. And writing the book <laughs> no. is the easy part, as we all know. Oh, like, totally. Just, you should write a book about Grand Central was basically, that was the hardest book, right? Yeah. There. Was <laughs> that was the hardest part. Yeah. My book is basically writing itself right now. I'm not even, at, you know. while you're on the show it's just just I I imagine a typewriter playing itself like a player piano right like like while you're not even with it exactly (laughs) if only people I guess that's what AI is what comes out of MK's uh, trip to England yeah Yeah. I don't know I don't know we'll see well Fiona I have to tell you so um the last time I was at the Rockettes I guess I can't remember. It was like maybe a year ago. I don't know. It was the first time that I had gone like post COVID when you could like actually go back in and um, see them. And I was so excited. And I remember sitting there and just being like, wow, the women that are on this stage, like for most of them, this is their absolute dream come true. Like there are thousands and thousands and thousands of little girls that grow up thinking, I want to be a Rockette. And like, then it's just this little number that actually get to do it. And I remember thinking like, someone should write a book about this. And I'm so glad <laughs> that you did because it's so, it's so fascinating. And especially that just kind of behind the scenes um, sneak peek of the past of the Rockettes too. So what do you think it is that fascinates us so much about the Rockettes? And can you talk a little bit about that and about your research to get both the world of the Rockettes and the time period of the Rockettes? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Um, so the book's set in the 1950s and it, Radio City was different then. Right now it's kind of a, a concert hall or for comedians or award shows. And back then it was a movie theater and it showed four movies a day. And when you bought a ticket to a movie, you also got a ticket to the stage show. And that included the Radio City Ballet Corps, a choral ensemble and the Rockettes. Wow. And so they would do four shows a day. And the schedule was insane. They would do four shows a day for three or four weeks straight. And then they'd get a week off. Wow. And each day they did. Oh my gosh. And they weren't on top of that. You know, each each show had a a kick line. So they did around 600 kicks per day, which is just, that's a workout. And so because of that, I learned that Radio City was really set up as this little city for all these performers because they never left pretty much. And there was, you know, there was a little film screening studio where they could see early premieres. Um, There were lounges. There was a dormitory for when they wanted to stay over. Up on the roof, apparently there was a shuffleball court and a wiffle ball court. And they'd go up there in between shows to hang out, which everyone in the skyscrapers, all the the guys in the skyscrapers love that (laughs) because they're on the roof. 
Um, and it was, it was really tough. You know, it was a really tough schedule. And so that was really fun to learn about. But what really struck me in talking to these Rockettes and doing the research was the sisterhood that this created because they were right on top of each other all the time. And, and, you know, one talked about walking down Fifth Avenue in the middle of the night, down the middle of the street, arm in arm with her dancers, singing at the top of their lungs. Oh, wow. Right? And it just gives me the chills because this is a time when women had to be secretaries or nurses or teachers yeah. or wives. And here they were in the middle of the city, making money, living independently and having the time of their lives. That's, That's incredible. incredible. That's incredible. Well, um, were there any things that you learned when you were doing this research that surprised you? Yeah, well, you know, I've answered that already, but yeah, no, there were there were a bunch of things like you know the 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 fact that it's an illusion that they all look so exactly alike on yeah. stage, and in fact, the tall ones are in the middle of a kick line, and then the shorter ones are at the ends, and then all the hemlines are made so that it's a straight line. Oh wow! And so I didn't know cool. that. Yeah. And the other thing I learned that fascinated me was when you see them doing that kick line, they have their hands behind each other's backs, mm -hmm. but in fact, they're not touching. There's a good few inches in between the back of one dancer and the hand of the other, um, you know, surprise. So they don't all topple down, but it's such an amazing illusion the way they do that. That's unbelievable. That's so interesting. They did videos again, back to COVID. They did Instagram videos, like teaching their dances Guys, I wouldn't have made it as a rocket. I just, I wanted to just go ahead and get that off my chest. <laughs> no. <laughs> no way. And that, books. that was one of the things I was really intimidated about writing about yeah. dance because I'm not a dancer. And, you know, the Rockettes are the epitome of, of dance. Yeah. The things they make look so effortless are so hard. Like they're <sighs> so hard. And they're smiling the entire time. I can't believe that's incredible. That's amazing. And in heels. Yes. And it heals exactly. And even kicking. walk straight in heels most of the time. <laughs> it's impressive. Uh, talk to us a bit about stumbling across the case. Of course, you know I had to pick out the criminal elements in this book. <laughs> <laughs> talk us. Talk to us about the Mad Bomber and who was he? And had you heard of him before? No, and no one I knew had. You know, as I was researching the fifties, I always look for an anchor for each book that kind of the story can be focused around. So it's not just the building, it's the city as well. And so for this, I was looking into the fifties and I learned that at the end of 1956, there was this huge push by the police to find what they called the mad bomber. And he was this guy who set bombs over 16 years in New York city, iconic locations like the library, like Penn station, like grand central. And he set a total of 33 bombs and injured, um, I think, 15 people, some very seriously. And this happened from the 40s to the 50s, and no one I knew had heard of it, which was incredible. And so they, he eventually was caught using criminal profiling for the very first time. Wow. And that's what got me in. I thought, oh, that's, you know, what if we have this profiler who has to track down this killer? Um, and so in my book, I call him the Big Apple Bomber because I changed some things. But in real life, it was a man named James Russell. And he studied all the letters that the Mad Bomber had written to the police. And he came up with this list of character, his characteristics that he'd be in his 40s or 50s. He'd probably be living with an older female relative. He'd be very methodical to the point where he said he would be wearing, when you catch him, 
he'll be wearing a, a double-breasted suit and it will be buttoned. And I won't give anything away, but needless to say, the, the science of criminal profiling was begun um, from this case. And so in my book, my character, Marion, who's this dancer, she um, starts dancing as a rockette. And, and for very personal reasons, she gets caught up in the hunt for the, the Big Apple bomber. And she teams up with this kind of introverted, sweet um, psychiatrist in training named Peter. And together they, they have to try and track this guy and, and hunt him down. So it's a mix. It's a romance. It's a thriller. It's historical fiction. It's a little bit of everything. Now, why fictionalize the Mad Bomber um, and instead of just calling him by his name or whatever he was known as at the time? You know, there are a couple legal issues, around, um, depending on the places that he bombed and who he had his grudge against. And so it just needed to be fictionalized just a little bit. And yeah. I explain very clearly in the author's note what, what's real and what's not. Right. Um, but it was, it was interesting. It was an interesting story to step into. Um, so, yeah, so I changed some of the details, but a lot of them are exactly the same. That's really cool. And it's so, so interesting that that was the first time that criminal profiling was used to. I mean, I, I had no idea that it had its roots there. So Fiona, without spoilers, there is, I was also um, really touched to see a mention in the book of Parkinson's disease, which I know hits close to home for you. Can you talk a little bit about your personal connection and especially why you decided to include it in the book? Yeah, sure. So in August of 2020, right, we were all locked down. And one day I learned that my book had hit the New York Times bestseller list, which was amazing. And then the next day I went to the doctor and learned I had Parkinson's, which oh, I was I very shocked. Oh, wow. And I'm really lucky. It, it's only a tremor. It's very well controlled by medication. Um, but as you know, I don't know about you guys, but I find it's interesting to process things, things through your art and to bring things from your real life in there and kind of play around with it and see what happens. So Parkinson's, it's very lightly touched upon in this book. It's not a heavy hand, but I feel like the arts are so important in terms of processing what you're going through, whether it's, you know, writing poetry or singing badly in the shower. It's <laughs> so helpful. And so also as I was writing it, you know, I, I was talking to other people who have it. And a lot of people would tell me, I don't tell anyone I have it because I don't want to seem old or I don't want to lose my job, which is really valid. Yeah. And it made me start thinking about, you know, Kristen, and this is so particular to you, but breast cancer 30 years ago, no one spoke about it, yeah. right? We never talked about it. And then it became this galvanizing political force <laughs> and research and change. And I feel like with Parkinson's, the more people kind of step up and say, yep, I have it. And this is what it looks like. Um, I'm thriving. Then the more we can do, because there's been so many breakthroughs, there's so much going on to really hopefully kind of change the trajectory of the disease in some way. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that because Fiona, I've just been so moved by how involved you've been with the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research and also just about being really public about your diagnosis, um, writing an essay about it for Good Morning America, for example. So can you talk to us a little bit about that choice you've made to be so public and, um, and to advocate for research and awareness? Yeah, you know, it turns out that a million people in America have um, have Parkinson's, and it's the the most common neurodegenerative disease after Alzheimer's, and it's growing like crazy. There's more and more people getting it, and we have to figure out why. And and I think there's just power in numbers, as you know. I mean, watching what you've done this past year has been truly moving, 
And I think, you know, we all get hit with stuff at some time and, and, you know, everybody has something they have to deal with and to kind of give a voice to it is, is just the way to go for me. Well, you know, Fiona, I've got to tell you, um, when it's interesting because we're talking about this book that in some ways was about a sisterhood of women, right? Like we're talking about the Rockettes and how they were a sisterhood. Um, and I felt that after my diagnosis, when I was kind of grappling around for how to deal with it, I thought about you and how you had faced your Parkinson's diagnosis so publicly. Kathy, Mary Kay, I thought about you and the way that you had been through such a dark Mm -hmm. period of your life and had emerged with such grace. Um, and Patty, I thought about you and how you dealt with your own breast cancer diagnosis a long time ago. So, um, and Christy, you're just a ray of sunshine always. So uh, you're always in my thoughts, but I, it, it was just, it's amazing. I, I mean, you all inspired me and certainly including you, Fiona, on that journey in very specific ways. So thanks for, you know, Fiona, you did more than, you have done more than just inspire people in terms of Parkinson's. You helped inspire me in terms of how to move forward with that diagnosis too. So Fiona, you have been such an incredible guest. Um, and actually, it, it, you know, we're pre-taping this episode. You and I are live tonight together, which is weird. Yes. It's like this broken time-space <laughs> continuum. But before we let you go, where can everyone find you online and on tour, aside from tonight, when <laughs> we're in Rhode Island together? Yes, yes, I love that. I can't <laughs> wait. Um, and so, yeah, you can find me at FionaDavisBooks.com. I'm at FionaDavisAuthor on Facebook and Instagram. And um, yeah, and and again, you guys, thank you so much. It's just such a joy to be part of your team and, you know, for, for a little while. It's just wonderful to watch you and everything you do to connect readers and, and authors. So thank you. Well, thank Fiona, you. Fiona, you are such we a love having you. Thank you we for coming. You. Oh, I wish I was in real life. Maybe I soon. Know. I know. Yeah. Hopefully soon. <laughs> I'll give her a hug. I'm jealous of you, you too. Yes, <laughs> we're jealous. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Fiona. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. We are excited to get to Heather Webb and her novel, Strangers in the Night. But first, a few quick messages from us. As we've mentioned, all four of us have new releases this year with Kristen's and Patty's just out, mine coming in July, and Mary Kay's coming in September. So to celebrate, we have some Simply Amazing events coming up, which means um, you can catch us as a group multiple times this year. We've been to Columbus and Charleston and Huntsville, and coming up, we'll be in Tampa, Florida on July 20th at Oxford Exchange for my launch of the Summer of Songbirds, then in my town of Beaufort, North Carolina on August 1st for a breast cancer fundraiser. And last but not least, we'll be in Darien, Connecticut on October 4th to launch Mary Kay's Bright Lights Big Christmas. So make sure you're signed up for our Friends in Fiction newsletter and for our individual newsletters so that you are the first to know more. Now, you guys have been listening to our Writer's Block podcast, right? It drops every Friday on all major podcasting platforms. We'll always post a link to the newest episode on our Facebook page and Instagram feed. On our most recent episode, Out Now, Kristen and Ron talked to Ann Hood about her memoir, Fly Girl, and her husband, Michael Ruhlman, about his latest, The Book of Cocktail Ratios. Coming Such a great Friday. title. I know. Coming I this Friday. Yeah, Patty and Ron will be talking to Ashley Aldrain about her new novel, The Whispers. So listen. Oh, I think that's me. 
Christy <laughs> ended up doing that. Whoops. Patty's <laughs> knee was Patty's awesome. Travel. Do not miss that, y'all. She was so good. Okay. Well, we know that the novel is The Whispers, and we know it's Ashley Audrain and and one of these women. I don't know. <laughs> one of these women. <laughs> one of the blondes. One of these blondes. blondes. blur together. One of the interchangeable blondes. blondes. Yeah. Yeah. So listen, review, subscribe, and share with a friend if you like what you hear, and we think you will. Absolutely. All right. Now it is time for our second guest, Heather Webb. Heather is a USA Today bestselling and award-winning author of several historical novels. In 2014, her novel Rodin's Lover was a Goodreads top pick, and in 2018, her last Christmas in Paris, co-written with Hazel Gaynor, won the Women's Fiction Writers Association Star Award, because she's a star. For <laughs> Meet Me in Monaco, was selected as a finalist for the 2020 Goldsboro RNA Award in the UK, and she came here with me to do events for it, and it was so fun, as well as the 2019 Digital Book World's Fiction Prize. To date, Heather's books have been translated into 17 languages. She lives in New England with her family, a mischievous kitten, and a feisty rabbit. I need a picture of the rabbit. Right? Um, Heather's, I do. I really need a picture of the rabbit. <laughs> I love bunnies. Makes me think of Beatrix Potter. So Heather's new release is a novel of Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner called Strangers in the Night. And I remember the first time we heard about it, we were on a text string and she announced it. And we were all like, that is genius. Love Brilliant. it. I can't so I'm so talk excited to, to talk about it. You meet yeah. a same here. Sean, can you bring Heather on? Hi, everybody. Hi, Heather. Genius. I've been called a genius already. We just started. I mean, <laughs> we like to start off on a sure foot. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> I mean, j just like we started the episode, right? I mean, as, as sure as like tripping over right. each we other. We can't remember our names, but you're a genius. <laughs> oh, well, I'm so happy to be here. I love this show and I haven't been on with you ladies before, even though oh, I know most gosh. of you in person. Um, so thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, we are thrilled. It's your visit is long overdue. So wow, I don't think anyone knew that. I know. I, I think I just assumed she'd been on. Like, you? I feel yeah, like she has. Yeah. Well, because she's all over the page, because so many friends and fiction oh, readers so post about her. And, and it's like, Heather, she, Heather, Heather. She just Heather. had another cover reveal. I'm like, Heather, I'm exhausted. I need a nap for you. Oh I need a nap for you. I have oh to gosh. tell you, yeah, you know how there's things going on behind the scenes and I had some deadlines compressed and some family stuff going on. So now it looks like all I do is write. Like <laughs> crazy animal that just cranks books out nonstop. But um, that's not terribly far from the truth. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I barely have gotten Strangers in the Night out and I did reveal a cover yesterday. So, um, oh. but it's good. It's all good. It's exciting. So. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. All right. Well, we are so excited to talk to you about Strangers in the Night. So it is the story of the tumultuous love affair between Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner, which really defined mid-century Hollywood. Can you give us the quick elevator pitch for the book and then tell us what the book is really about at its heart? Sure. Um, well, you kind of gave us the quick elevator pitch, but, but I'll <laughs> say that, uh, you know, um, Frank and Ava were incredibly iconic figures, um, both really talented individuals. Their worlds kept colliding and uh, they both are so full of charisma and charm. It, it feels almost in inevitable that they would um, end up in each other's arms ultimately. And they did, and it was a wild ride. And the book is, uh, it's very voicey, it's dishy. It's a bit like reading a tabloid magazine. 
Um, but I think there's a lot of heart in it too. And uh, I do explore a bit of the studio culture of Hollywood as well. And you see a lot of names that you recognize because they knew everyone. I mean, all their, their paths kept crossing with all these amazing stars, both in the music world and in uh, the film world. So. Awesome. Um, Heather, you've written biographical fiction before with Rodan's mm -hmm. Lover and Becoming Josephine. But as you note in the author's note at the end of Strangers in the Night, this is your first time writing about both figures who lived during your lifetime mm -hmm. and figures whose lives were so closely documented. I got to say that when I lived in North Carolina, I got fascinated with Ava Gardner because, of course, there's an Ava Gardner Museum in North there Carolina. Is. Wow. Yeah, yeah, Smithfield, a little right. dot on the map about an hour from Raleigh. Right. So. Would you talk a bit about how this idea for a story about Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner came about? Sure. And, and, and I heard that you hesitated at first, right? I did. So um, my publisher actually approached me with this idea. I was working on another book, um, The Next Japone, which it just came out last year, uh, my Ellis Island epic. Um, and uh, it's actually with a different publisher. And you know, you guys know that sometimes that's happening behind the scenes. But they approached me and said, we have this great idea. Um, we need a writer. We really want you. You've done biographicals. You know how to do you know, tragedy and love and angst. Will you do it? And I said, it's Frank. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to say no. <laughs> right. so, um, so I did sign on for it. And um, I got to tell you, I started reading about Ava first. And... I fell in love with her and her wild um, nature and her charm and her very down to earth sort of sensibilities. And I thought, man, I wish I was just writing a book about her at one point. And then I started researching Frank and of course he's incredibly fascinating as a person. And so I thought, you know what? I love that I'm doing both. And um, I started writing the book in third person actually, because I thought, I don't know if I can be in Frank's head that close, mm -hmm. um, but you know, the book wasn't, it wasn't coming to me. I, I kept getting stuck. And so I switched into first person and it was like turning the lights on wow. all of a sudden I can hear both of them talking to me all the time. Wow. It was, a, it was an incredible thing. So um, what I'm so happy about is that I keep getting actually author friends, but readers too, that are pinging me saying, um, how I feel like they're in the room with me. How did you get their voices? And I'm, I think they possessed me. I don't know, <laughs> but but yeah, I it, you channeling, know, I, channeling, yeah. Heather, not possession. Yeah. Much, yeah, that's a much better word. Big difference. Big difference. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I definitely channeled them. I think and um and they were uh, you know great fun to to write about. But I did hesitate. I mean, Frank has two daughters who are living. Um, Nancy Sinatra, in fact, I think she's in her early eighties. Um, she's on Twitter. <laughs> so, um, so you have Nancy on Twitter and then Tina is a Hollywood film agent and she just broke her to deal with Netflix, in fact, for a biopic about Frank. Um, and so they're very active still. And I just thought, oh, that's better scary. Right. It's a little scary. Yeah. Um, but I just got a message a few days ago from a woman who knows Tina Sinatra's really close cousin who read the book. And I was holding my breath reading this message. I know you guys know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. Um, and she Awful. said, I just wanted you to know that this is the only thing I've ever read about him that I loved. And I feel uh, like you humanized him and it was, whew, is right. I was very happy about that. So, um, so I was hesitant, but 
you know, here we are. You have to take risks in your writing, I think. Um, you know, yeah, Ava, Ava never had children, did she? No, um, she was, you know, she, her mother had ovarian cancer. Um, and I think this really imprinted upon Ava. Uh, and, and she was quite afraid to have kids for a long mm. time. But I also think, you know, her lifestyle, she really started to be honest with herself about her lifestyle um, and uh, realize that she, you know, kids were not for her. So, you know, I can respect someone who can yeah. see, you know, this yeah. is not what I need to be doing. And, um, you know, I have other things to other gifts that I can share and, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, no, no children for Ava. Well, that um, meant you didn't have to ask for permission to write about her. Yeah. But, right. Right. So, there is an umbrella through the um, publisher that sort of covers you when you're writing fiction. Right, right. You know, yeah. if I was saying this is nonfiction and I started quoting people, then I would definitely need permission. Right, yeah. Um, but this is a little bit You know, I wrote about a real person whose child is alive also. And so there is, you just have to not think about it when you're yeah. doing it. Yeah. And then and then when you're done, then all of a sudden it's like, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? Right? What have I done? Um, well, I love Frank Sinatra and I listen to the Sinatra SXM station a lot. And his daughter, Nancy, does it like she she'll pick the songs and come on and tell stories about him. And so I knew that she was still involved in his legacy. But Speaking of his daughter, I love your epigraph, which includes two quotes, one from Tina, who says simply, they were something, and one from biographer James Kaplan, who said he would never get her out of his system, nor would she ever truly get him out of hers, which makes me think of Hadley and Hemingway. Yeah. But, and writing as Frank Sinatra, you have him say in the book, I had regrets, plenty of them. I'm not going to start singing. But loving her wasn't one of them. Loving her was one of the things I'd done right, even if I hadn't done it well. And though their marriage was tumultuously and sh relatively short, they remained friends for the rest of their lives. So all that to say, after spending so much time in their heads, can you tell us about their ups and downs? And do you think they would have made it if they weren't in the public eye, dealing with the pressure of all of that? Um, yeah, so the ups and downs, I think um, you have a woman who is basically throwing mention to the wind. Um, she, you know, not wanting to settle down with a family, wanting to pursue her career. I mean, um, so this is already very unique. Uh, and it was something that really attracted Frank to her. He liked the independence, the strong will that she had. Um but at the same time, you know, he was raised in a very traditional um, Catholic Italian upbringing home. So he really wanted that little wife at home waiting for him, taking care of him. And, um, you know, he did have it with his first wife and, and left her for Ava. Um, but he wanted this in Ava. He wanted her to be there for him. But in his eyes, that meant giving up her career and putting it completely yeah. on hold. And she's like, who do you think you married? Absolutely not. So this caused a lot of friction, um, but they just really couldn't stay away from each other. I think they had a lot of um, similarities. 
Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in terms of their personality. And um, this created passion, but it also created a lot of friction. So um, over the years, you know, that that wildness definitely settled into something more like a loving relationship and friendship. And they would come together for a hot weekend in, in Italy or in Spain or, you know, some other place in, in the U.S. and then get into a fight 24 hours later and part and take off. Um, but, you know, to the end, you know, they, they talked on the phone almost every single day, even long distance for hours. Wow. Um, just like Frank called his children every single day, um, cool. which is kind of wonderful. Um, but I think that had they not been in the public eye, they would still be who they are. I, you know, the egos would be off the table to some degree, but um, I just, I think that that core need to be taken care of on Frank's end wouldn't change necessarily. And her need to just be wild and floating free uh, wouldn't change either, you know? So um, I don't think that they would be together. I, ha I hate to say it's so sad, but um, you know, and they were, and they weren't together till the end. And I think that's kind of the beauty of it, mm -hmm. you know? So. And I think, it's also human nature and it's fascinating. And we see it not just in the famous that where somebody is attracted to someone and they love them for who they are and then immediately want them to become who they want them to be. Yeah. And so right. Good. And so, yeah. I mean, we see it over and over. We might have done it before. We, we may have. With maybe, I don't know. Well, and so, there are people that you, you can know, love madly, but know that you can't be married yeah. to. Yes. It's no, a I, different I, thing. Like it is. a marriage is not, it's a different relationship. Yeah. You I don't love head into it thinking. Because it's yeah, true. That's ahead. one of the things I kind of explore in the book is the, the yeah. different kinds of love. I mean, he loved Nancy, his first wife, until the day he died. But it was a really different kind of love than what he felt for Ava. And I, I think you're totally right. I mean, you, you can kind of know that not everyone's meant for a relationship. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Heather, you and I have talked about this before, but I live just a couple hours from Smithfield and there's this like, I don't know if it's true or if it's urban legend. And I've asked you about this, but they say that there were fresh flowers put on Ava's grave every single week until the day. And no one knew who it was. Like it was just, and it was until the day Frank Sinatra died. And yes. And that's true. Oh, oh my I gosh. Actually I looked into that. That's that's so yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. He did not come to her funeral, though, which is he couldn't. He didn't yeah. go to his best friend Humphrey Bogart's funeral either. He he, he couldn't he couldn't say goodbye. Um, wow. So it also probably would have been about him. And yeah. some people are smart that's enough true. to know that. Yeah, that's, you know? that's a great point, actually. You're right. It would have become this big circus. circus. Yeah, especially it would have been all about him. Can you imagine Frank Sinatra showing up in Smithfield? Like that would have been, yeah. it would definitely no longer have been about Ava. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> they would have shut the I think she would down. have understood. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. because you were dealing primarily with the love story between Ava and Frank, you had to fit this all into less than 400 pages. So I imagine that you had to leave a lot on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Um, so can you talk about that process of making these decisions about what do you include? What belongs in the book? And what do you leave out? Yeah, I think most historical authors wrestle with this, don't we? There's so much great information. We just want to share all of it. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't serve the plot or reveal something about the character, you have to kind of prune it, and, you know, put it in your I notes. Hate or, it. I hate it. Right? I hate it's it. so hard. And there's so many great things. I mean, I left out 
you know, Frank's son was kidnapped at one point. I left that out. I left out his relationship with Kennedy, um, with Reagan, uh, so many things, much, much more about uh, the Rat Pack and the Mafia. I mean, you get a little bit of that. You definitely get a taste of it in the background. But um, I mean, he has a huge file with the FBI, thousands of pages thick. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I really wanted to go into that my publisher was like, well, this isn't really what the story is. So I cut 100 pages. Um, oh, wow. And had, to, yeah, I've never, I, I tend to be a lean writer. So I'll write a short draft and then I expand, but not with this book. And, mm. and in fact, I wrote the beginning. I could not write the middle for some reason. I had to write the end. Mm. And then I wrote the scene before the end. And then the scene before that. I mean, wow. the scene before oh, so interesting. A crazy drafting process. I have no idea why it demanded that I write it that way, but I just, you know what? I was getting so frustrated that I couldn't move forward. So um, I thought, what the heck? I'm just going to try it. Um, but yeah, there's a, up, there a ton, baby. It's really yeah. wow. <laughs> really Okay. Will you tell us about this, your new book that you just announced too? I mean, it's like your new baby's just been born, but let's talk about your next one. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know what that's like. You yeah. are all writing, writing books and, and, and rocking and rolling. Um, yeah. So it's called Queens of London and it is 1925. Uh, and it is about the first female, all female crime syndicate called the 40 Elephants. And they are led by Diamond Annie, who's the most notorious thief in UK history. And she's one of my point of view characters. Another point of view character is Lillian Wiles, who is the first woman to be admitted to the criminal investigation department of Scotland Yard. And then I have uh, an orphan on the run and a very clever shop clerk and their lives collide. And so you've got four points of view. It's, it's very fast paced. It's very fun. Um, but I think it's, it's touching too. Um, it was an absolute blast to write this book. Uh, it's quite different from strangers of the night. Um, but you know, this is what we do. We try to explore different, different kinds of books, don't we? So yeah, I'm very excited about this oh, next February. Can't oh wait. my gosh, that's coming so soon, uh, right at the heels of this one. It does sound like you're just cranking those books out. My goodness, yeah, that's amazing. But it's, you know, they're a year apart. And yeah. Yes, yeah. of course, of course. No, you're just making me feel like I'm a slacker in comparison. Um, <laughs> Kristen, you are far from a slacker, my dear. <laughs> I'm like, pick up the pace, Kristen, come on. Um, Heather, uh, how about your work with um, with Hazel Gaynor? I, I know she has a new book out this week too. I think she's joining us next week. Do you have another book in the works with her? I do, actually. We had a plot phone call this morning. Ooh, nice. uh, so the book is called Christmas with the Queen, and it is sort of the crown meets the king's speech. Um, but we, our main characters are uh, a woman who is the, correspond the royal correspondent to the BBC and uh, a royal chef. And they, they're, you know, they're, they're brought together because they are on the staff, uh, the royal staff, and um, 1952 to 1957. So the first radio broadcast for Queen Elizabeth and then 57 is the first televised broadcast. So that's sort of the framework of the, of the book and um, very excited about that. That's next Christmas season. God, I want that one now. I know that sounds <laughs> fabulous. Heather, with all of the, uh, with all of the stuff that you had to cut out of this book um, because you couldn't get to it, do you see yourself ever returning to this world or, or is it kind of like, okay, I've done that now I'll move on. Like, could you see yourself writing like a Rat Pack novel or something about like a different era of Sinatra's life or, or anything along those lines? You know, I think that 
once we start working on something else, you, you, you really do shelf it in your, yeah. in your heart, your mind, and you think that you're done with it. But I, you know, I worked on Meet Me in Monaco with Hazel um, about Grace Kelly and her royal wedding. I did not think I was going to go back to Hollywood. I'm not a huge Hollywood book reader, but not, now all of a sudden I'm an, I'm an expert, apparently, um, in 1940s and 50s Hollywood. So, you know, never say never. I don't have, you know, any immediate plans, but um, one never knows, you know, <laughs> Rat Pack would be kind of fun. Maybe a TV show about like a streaming Netflix Ooh. series. I might have to go write that down. Oh, um, you should think about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Oh my gosh. But like from the women's point of view, right? Like the Rat Pack, but like the women who. There was really only one, I think. And that was Angie Dickinson, right? Well, I guess I just mean like the women who were oh. in, in their orbit, sort of, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe just a different So Shirley Temple it. was part of that Rat Pack, actually, for a while. She knew them. She was quite young. And um, and in fact, she was out with, D- there's this, I'm trying to remember if I left it in the book or if I cut it. Um but there was this whole scene when they were in Chicago and they were, you know, they went out on stage and did their, their thing. Um, and uh, she tried to keep up with Frank and Dean, but she wasn't making the kind of money they were making yet. You know, she wasn't really, really famous yet. Um, and, it, you know, sort of in a long-term way. So, uh, but they treated her extremely well. She was one of the gang. And uh, now I find it so funny when I see her on things like Downton Abbey, I think, oh, but she was part of the Rat Pack back in the day. Um, so yeah, it would be fun to do it maybe with her and then all the women that are sort of clamoring around the stars. Yeah. Ooh, I think so. that would be incredible. I would watch that. I get, <laughs> get, get, get right on that, Heather. <laughs> we're, we're waiting for it. <laughs> all right. So finally, Heather, before we let you go, where can our viewers find you on the road and online in the coming weeks? So I'm at Ms. Heather Webb. That's M-S Heather Webb on all platforms, Twitter, Facebook, well, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I'm not really on TikTok. Um, website, heatherweb.net. And um, yeah, I love talking with readers. I have a newsletter that goes out once a month. Um, don't like to spam, so I'm, I'm quite you know careful with that. But um, would love to love to see anyone who's interested in talking more about Frank Sinatra. So, and Ava, of course. Oh, of course. <laughs> well, Heather, thank you so much for being with us. It was such a pleasure to hear a little bit more about the book. Thank you for having me, ladies. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. I want to see you in person too. To you. <laughs> Let me know when you're out. Yes, I will. Bye. Thanks, Bye, Heather. Heather. Well, you guys, what an evening, but it is not over yet. We'll be welcoming Brenda Janowitz on the after show in just a moment. Don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We will be back next week to welcome Heather's sometimes writing partner, Hazel Gaynor, as well as Catherine Ray and T.I. Lowe. We have such a fun episode in store for you and we cannot wait. So we will see you next week. But first, we will see you in 30 seconds on the after show. great they are adorable yes and how wonderful just the way that it all um fit together with these mid-20th century topics and fame and stardom and all of that it just i feel like when i always go ahead kathy i was gonna say i feel like we could go to radio city music hall time travel back go to radio city music hall and you know watch some of those movies yeah, that's Absolutely. right. Oh my gosh. Including, of course, with um, Hepburn. Well, yes. 
Exactly. Which is a good segue. Such (laughs) a great segue into our final guest of the evening, who is the wonderful Brenda Janowitz. So Brenda was supposed to join us in April to celebrate the launch of her latest novel, The Audrey Hepburn Estate, but her mother passed away just days before the launch of the book. She wrote a beautiful essay about the loss and the way that the literary community lifted her up for Maria Shriver's Sunday paper, which I really encourage you to check out. Um, It's pretty easy to find if you just look for it on Google, or I think you can find it on her social media. We are so glad that we were able to reschedule Brenda and that she is here with us tonight. So let's hear a little bit about her. Brenda is the author of seven novels, including The Grace Kelly Dress, which has been optioned for film by Hallmark Crown Media. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, The Washington Post, Real Simple, USA Today, Bustle, and Salon. And she's the former books correspondent for Pop Sugar. Brenda attended Cornell University and Hofstra Law School, where she was a member of the Law Review. Upon graduation from Hofstra, she worked for the law firm K. Scholar LLP and did a federal clerkship with the Honorable Marilyn Golan, Dolan Go. <laughs> she did a federal clerkship for the University <laughs> of New York. So her eighth novel, The Audrey Hepburn Estate, was released on April 18th. Sean, can you bring Brenda on? Hi, Hi Brenda. Brenda. So good to see you. It's so great seeing you guys. And that was such a lovely introduction. I started tearing up. You guys are so amazing. Oh, thank you for coming. Yeah, you're amazing. Your support over the last, I guess it's two months now, has just been like incredible. And I can't thank you guys enough. And I'm excited to be back. So thank you. We're so (laughs) happy to have you. You know, our hearts were really with you during that time. We felt it as as friends we felt it as authors um it's it's just it's really really good to see you here and, and yeah. see you doing well thank you so, for having me of course so brenda of course we are so excited to be talking with you tonight about the audrey hepburn estate could you give us a quick overview of the book and then tell us what it's really about at its heart Absolutely. So it's inspired by the Audrey Hepburn film, Sabrina, which is one my of my favorite. favorites. Oh, is it really? Oh, yeah. Mary Kay's very favorite. Yeah. Oh, it's so dreamy. And every time I watch it, I sort of get something different from it, which is mm-hmm. fascinating. You know, I first saw it as a kid and I've watched it about a million times in the last year and watching it as an adult is such a different experience. Uh, but even over the last year, it was all these different experiences. Uh, but anyway, it truly inspired the book. It's the story of a woman who goes back to the home where she grew up once she learns it's set to be demolished and she decides she needs to see it one more time. Going back to the estate brings two men from her past back into her life, and it really forces her to examine sort of all of the choices she made and re-examine her past, which she thought she really knew what it was all about. But it's really about the true meaning of home. Mm. I love that. I love that. Thank you. I love when someone can just say, it's about this. And sometimes I think we know it right when we start a book, and sometimes I think we don't know it. Until we finish it, right? I couldn't agree more. I always say that about the first draft versus the second draft. I think the first draft is sort of getting things out and figuring out what the book is actually about. And the second draft is always stronger because at that point, you know what the book is actually about. Yeah, I know. And then you can go back and take what it's about and add little sprinkles of it throughout the book. So I love it. Not only when that happens, but when an author includes bonus material like you did, and you have this great section at the end where you talk about all the nods to Audrey Hepburn throughout the novel. 
Was there anything surprising you learned about her? I mean, we all know, I mean, she is a icon. And I, when I see her face, like, and her dress, just the way she just looked good in everything. Was there anything surprising you learned in your research? There were so many surprising things I learned in the research. And I think at one point, I almost didn't know if I could write the book because so much surprised me. I've been obsessed with Audrey Hepburn ever since I was a little girl. And so when I started writing this, I was like, oh, the research is going to be a breeze. I already know everything. (laughs) Has that ever happened to someone where you're like, I know that I need to research. (laughs) So the first thing that I learned that sort of knocked me off my feet was that she, uh, in her childhood for five years, she lived under Nazi occupation in Holland. And I was shocked. I had no idea. I'd never heard of this before. And it wasn't something she ever really talked about much. Um, So I was sort of shocked because most of the um, biographies start in childhood. So I picked up the first book and 20 pages in, I was sort of like, what's happening and what am I going to write about? Uh, But you know, I, I remember talking to Andrea from Great Thoughts on Facebook, and I said, okay, I just can't write this book. How am I supposed to write about these beautiful dresses and a chic woman, and yeah. here she lived through Nazi occupation? Like, she's like, just lean into it. And I said, oh, I'm afraid it's going to make the book sad. And she was like, no, 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 just you're going to do your thing, be inspired the way you usually are, because this is the third book I've written, inspired by a Hollywood icon. So, you know, you get all these little tidbits, and the inspiration just sort of comes, it comes time to write another chapter. And like, in the in the Liz Taylor ring, I was like, let's put it on a yacht. She lived on a yacht for a number of years in her life. And so I just sort of like started weaving it in. And once I realized that little bit of her life. And once I then understood why home was so important to Audrey Hepburn, the book sort of came together for me. But that was the most surprising. There were other surprising things. Tell another one. Tell another one. Okay, good. (laughs) I was hoping you would say that. One of the things- (laughs) Tell another one. Shocked me to my core because to me, Audrey Hepburn is elegance, grace, style. Um, She had an affair on the set of Sabrina. I didn't know that. Did you know that, Mary Kay? I I read about it. You know, I've had this bizarre obsession with reading about movie stars for a long time. So, yeah. And then, you know, my other favorite, Brenda, is uh, Charade. Oh, me too. We need to have like a movie marathon together. (laughs) We have similar taste. Yeah. Oh, Cary Grant, Charade. Oh, God. I watched that one a number of times also. And at a certain point, I was like, am I procrastinating or am I researching? (laughs) But I, I, you know, Cary Grant, Cary Grant. But yeah, so she had an affair with William Holden and she was madly, desperately in love with him. And the only reason why she did not continue this affair was because she learned he'd had a vasectomy and more than anything, she wanted children and she just couldn't get over this. Yeah. (laughs) And I remember at the time when I was researching it, I called my mother because I was so horrified. And she was like, no, that was the style then. Everyone had affairs. I was like, the style? Style? What? She was like, it wasn't a big deal. Affairs (laughs) are in vogue. Affairs are in vogue. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So you suddenly wove her life into the novel. Of course, she's on the cover. So do you, her name, do you have a favorite (laughs) hidden nod to her? And why does it feel important to you to do that in your novels? Wow. Um, 
gosh, so many of them. I definitely kept a running list while I was researching of things that I felt had to be in the novel because they were important to me and I felt that they were important to Audrey Hepburn lovers. Uh, I think my favorite little bits are where I have my protagonist actually dressing up in actual gowns that Audrey wore. Um, I think such a big part of why we love Audrey Hepburn is the style and her relationship with fashion. So at two distinct points, I have her wearing the two Sabrina gowns. So first the white gown with the black brocade and then the black gown, which... I feel like it doesn't get enough, you know, people don't talk about it as much. When they talk about the Sabrina gown, they're talking about the white strapless with the black embroidery. But that black gown with the shoulders and the the deep V in the back, I'm just crazy for it. So I knew I had to have her in that as well. So I sent her to a wedding so that she could get all dressed up <laughs> in her Audrey dress. It. Which actually it. was known as the Sabrina dress. It wasn't oh, the Audrey that. dress. It was known as the Sabrina dress. I love that. I love it. <laughs> I mean, we could talk about the we could talk about the clothes all night. I mean, yes. I went into a deep dive. I, I read a biography of Edith Head, where Edith Head <sighs> took credit for the Givenchy gowns, right? Oh my God, right? You know, in the author's note, I mentioned it twice because it's like two different instances of her sort of stealing credit. First, yeah. in the actual credits of the film, she just has her name. And then in her Oscar speech, she never thanks the poor guy. So I have it mentioned twice. And my editor's like, you're mentioning this twice. I'm like, it needs to be mentioned twice. <laughs> <laughs> this woman did not. She gave him no credit. And then with the Sabrina gown, when people said, wasn't this a Givenchy design? She's no, no, no. Well, I, I changed it. <laughs> like, so she added a bow. It's like, no, it's in the head. So, I don't know. Maybe there's an Edith Head novel in the works because she oh. was saucy. Oh, <laughs> oh that God. would be yeah. cool. Yeah, Edith that. Head didn't even yeah. know how to sew. Did you know that? What? <laughs> no. Oh, no. All right. That's wow. another show. That's another show. Okay. We need to have a Sabrina watch party. I yes. have not seen it. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> We could have a triple feature. We could do Sabrina, uh, Charade, and Roman Holiday. Perfect. perfect. That's like I'm in. A perfect night. And Christy will make mullets too. It's all good. Great. It's going to be great. Brenda, I think she missed that. And now she's like, ew, what? Just No, it sounds amazing. Tell me more. Disgusting. Disgusting. <laughs> Okay, we, got, we have to get back. We got to get back on track, and, and this is kind of a heavy to follow up on the style stuff. But there's a thread in the book about Nazis and Nazi hunters, and here in modern day America, and I don't think any of us were expecting that. Um, but tell us how you managed to tie that in with Audrey uh, being involved in the Dutch resistance during World War II. Yeah. So, I mean, the main piece was I was just so obsessed with this fact that she had spent her childhood under Nazi. Um, occupation. I just couldn't get over it. And especially the fact that she didn't talk about it. And in the Netflix documentary that came out, I don't know if it was last summer or the summer before, but um, it's briefly mentioned. And her eldest son says that it was just something she didn't talk about. And then that's it. <laughs> that's all he says. So I became really obsessed. I did sort of a deep dive and I knew I had to include it. Uh, it just, it, I don't know, it felt like the book wouldn't be complete without it. So I was, I decided to, you know, I have an heirloom item in each of these last three novels. So with the Grace Kelly dress, it was wedding dress. Then we got a little bigger for the Liz Taylor ring and it was a massive diamond ring and I didn't know how to get bigger. So I decided it should just be like the whole estate. <laughs> so we had to get as big as possible. So once I was doing a house, um, 
there's no other way to do a house other than like a creepy gothic house, I felt. So I wanted elements of that in the book. So the estate, there would be a question, um, you know, is it haunted? Like just all these things with the history. And so once I was sort of laying into that and really going in that direction, it was sort of easy to place a little Nazi memorabilia in the house. Like once we're weird and spooky and people are dying, why not throw Nazi memorabilia in there? So that was sort of how I wove it in. And then once I had that little taste and, you know, you know, you have to resolve it, but it could have been big or little. Um, I just decided to go all in. (laughs) So it just sort of built from there. But also keeping in mind, it is sort of like a beach read, a plane read. So I wanted to get the information in there, but I don't want to say keep it light, but like keep it light that it's still very much a beach read. Um, You're not going to be crying reading this book. Like you're still getting the spirit of Audrey, but maybe you're getting a few things that you didn't know about her. I love that. I like that. I like that. Well, there's also a really great love triangle in this book, going back to the more lighthearted part of the story. So Emma is drawn to both Leo and Henry. She loves both of them in different ways, but she's been hurt by both of them too. You write interpersonal relationships, like the one she has very well. And here you add the additional complications of having um, the three, having grown up together and also the dynamic of Leo's father and Emma's mother having worked for Henry's wealthy grandparents, which put them on somewhat uneven ground. So can you talk a bit about creating the characters of Leo and Henry? Absolutely. Uh, That's such an interesting question because I really started with Emma. I always start with my protagonist first, I think, and that's sort of my way in. And it was hard for me to figure out who Emma was at first. And I think I had to figure her out before I could figure out who the two love interests would be. And then it's almost like um, these men are two different characters because I have them as young men and then as grownups. So I was sort of figuring that out as I went. But I think the big connection is Emma. And I wanted to write a love triangle where really she could be with either man, that either man was an option. And it wasn't going to be like sometimes in movies, it's like, all of a sudden, here's a terrible thing about this guy. Oh, we can't be with him because he did X. And I didn't want that. I wanted to, I wanted it to be a little more true to life where actually, Christy, you mentioned this earlier that it's like, you might want to be with someone, but maybe not married to them. Like not everyone is your forever person. And that's, that's just life. Right. Um, and so I really wanted each man to sort of stand on his own. So that was a big part of it for me. Uh, and then, you know, like you said, I had to consider sort of where they came from. In my books, I'm always considering the different generations. And if you have the parents on the page, you have to think to yourself, okay, how would this kid come from this parent? Yeah. Um, and, you know, being a mom, it's it's something you think about, like your kids are like you, they're unlike you in other ways. So it's something I'm always sort of like thinking about and playing with. Uh, but creating those characters is a lot through the first, second, third draft, sort of like refining and figuring out who they are. Like, for example, at one point I realized, um, I don't want to spoil it for readers, but one of the men um, would be really funny. And the other, it was more like, I don't want to say sexual, but maybe like a little sexy. So at one point I remember as I was, I, I didn't edit with just Henry and then just Leo. And then one of them was like having the other's qualities. And I was like, oh, he can't be funny. Take that out. No jokes from this guy. No so, laughs. No laughs. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's a lot of that. Just sort of like refining and figuring that out along the way. 
Oh, well, that totally makes sense. I, I loved I loved that love triangle dynamic, though. I thought it was really done here. It, it, done very well here. I mean, sometimes sometimes it works on the page. Sometimes you're rooting for one guy from the beginning. But this was very much um, like you kind of didn't know who to root for. There were different reasons to root for both of them. So I, I yeah, really, really liked that. Yeah, and I really will tell that. you, my husband was rooting for the one who she doesn't pick. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. I'm going to have to go back and think about it with that in mind. Okay. All right. All you right. Being like, are you sure? Uh, you're like, yeah, it's sure. done. Sorry, honey. Yep. <laughs> well, Brenda, before we let you go, we have to ask what's up next for you. Can we expect another novel that honors an actress from old Hollywood? And in fact, more importantly, how are you going to go bigger than a house? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that is the question. And I think, you know, it's really hard to top Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I've been grappling with right now. Uh, and I don't know that I can. <laughs> and I don't know that I can go bigger than a house. So I might be going in a different direction for my next adult novel. Uh, but I, as as you guys mentioned, I sold film rights to the Grace Kelly dress. So I'm really excited about that. I won't be writing the screenplay, but I will be trying to sneak onto the film set uh, once the writer's strike is over. Uh, and then I recently sold my first young adult novel, which is so exciting for me. And it's a little scary how easily I can write in a 17-year-old voice. <laughs> <laughs> there's oh, something very comforting about that yeah that is so exciting Brenda you want to give called? us a quick yeah give us a quick idea what it's about oh sure it's called Mind the Gap and it's about uh, a woman who graduates high school and then impulsively decides to take a gap year and go to Europe which when I told my niece about it I was like but you don't do that <laughs> that's fictional <laughs> Oh, I that's love awesome. it. Well, it's it such sounds a great. great. Title. And, and our Meg Walker is saying in the comments, great title too. So yep, that's, Thank that you. is amazing. <laughs> well, Brenda, we wish you all the best with that. And of course, with your, um, your film set crashing antics, um, we look forward <laughs> to seeing those down the road at the end of the writer's strike. But thank you so much for joining us tonight, Brenda. It was lovely to see you. And, um, and to all of you out there, thank you for joining us for what has really felt in the best way possible, like old Hollywood night around here. I love when we have a theme. So, <laughs> and, not, and not on purpose things. Not even right. not for that. If I had known, I would have run it down. Yes, exactly. <laughs> all right. To all of you out there, as always, we are deeply grateful for your support of this show, of our books, of our guests, and most of all, of us and each other. Thank you for being with us, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Good night. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.